0: Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Unfollowing Mum. Today I have a really special guest, I'm so grateful that she's given me her time and I cannot wait to chat to her about all things estrangement, the concept of the good child which I think is something that absolutely needs more discussion around it, that is Maggie Nick. Hi Maggie. Hi, thank you for having me, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for being here. Can you tell listeners what it is? And I always think it's a really big ask, but like, who are you? What is it that you do? Can you let us know?
2: Gosh, I've gotten better at like not taking a long time to explain this. (laughs) But yes, I was a good kid. I was a perfect child, the one you never need to worry about, the one who's so good and so well behaved. And I basically spent my life recovering from that. Um, I was suffering in silence, but I was so worried about disappointing and letting my parents down and upsetting them and being a burden. And so I suffered in silence and I held all my feelings in and I I took care of everybody else. And I was the delight to have in class and you know straight A's and three sports. And on the outside, it just looked like everything was great. And inside I was crumbling, but had no idea how to feel safe enough to explain that to anyone. And so I think the recovery from that has looked like, Recovering from so many things that are really, if we could draw a straight line through all of them, it's shame. Uh, perfectionism, people pleasing, needing to control everything, anxiety, low self worth, vicious self hatred, codependency, fear of disappointing and upsetting other people, having no boundaries and no sense of like th- that I deserved them or had any idea how to set them, and an eating disorder. And so I'm a therapist now. I became an accidental expert in Mm -hmm. parenting, low self-worth and shame, really in an attempt to try to heal myself. And knowing that if I didn't figure all this stuff out, I was going to royally fuck up my kids. And so I ended up becoming an accidental parenting expert. And I created my own parenting framework called Parenting with Perspectacles. They're these silly glasses we had for my daughter's third birthday. (laughs) Uh, from Target. And uh, I I started using the concept with my clients. I'd be like, okay, but let's put on our perspecticals. What do we see? And it's just kind of putting a critical eye and trying to figure out why do I hate myself so much? Why am I so upset about this? And really with the, I mean, at the end of the day, perspecticals are meant to kind of see through shame, really. Um, but I teach parents how to get perspecticals on their kids, their toddlers to teens to try to heal their own low self-worth and their inner child so they can raise kids who don't struggle with all this stuff. They can make those crucial shifts in parenting um, so that they can raise kids who are kind and confident and actually feel good about themselves. Like, what would that be like? Um, I'm also the co-founder of the Estrangement Project, which is a collaboration with three other fabulous mental health and mother wound experts. Um, to support those walking through estrangement from their mothers and I'm the co-founder of an upcoming very exciting project about helping parents who are trying to not fuck up their kids while healing from their own trauma.
0: You know all honestly all of that sounds so fantastic to me especially when you talk about giving your you know putting on the spectacles to see how we can parent and not repeat the cycle. I talk a lot on my yeah. channels about generational trauma and trying to break it and I look back at my own Parenting when I first became a parent, and so much of it mirrors all of the things that I hated, all of the things that I know crushed me. And I've now come to a point where I have a relationship, especially with my eldest, where he can answer me back. And I don't view mm-hmm. it as answering me back, I view it as having a conversation. Oh, yes. But I mean, when I was younger, God, I I would have been so confronted by that. And so many, that's such a small example, but so many of the things that I know deeply impacted me and knowing what I know now deeply impacted me and seeing how they deeply impacted me. I know I started to repeat those when I first became a parent. It's so easy. Of course you did. Yeah. It's not possible to not.
2: Mm. And, and you can hate the impact that has on your kids. Although when we circle back to repair and apologize and own our behavior. And if I feel like most importantly, see the impact we had on our kids and help them feel like we get that. I hurt you. And I see that. And I'm sorry. We're on, you know, it's not going to be processed as trauma in their bodies, thankfully, but you can hate the impact, but I don't hate yourself for that. That's how it goes. Like, it'd be like you grew up, speaking english and you're now expecting yourself to perfectly speak mandarin with no mistake like how fuck are you going to do that how (laughs) it's not possible and i would argue parenting and trying to parent from this unseen order that we're all parenting from of like that didn't that was crushing so i'll try to do i guess the exact opposite of that you don't have a blueprint I mean, that's really why I'm here today as a parenting expert, because there was nobody out there to give me a freaking blueprint for how to do this, other than the diabolical opposite of what I got, you know? You've never seen anyone be this parent that you're trying to be. So, like, it would actually be weird if you didn't fall into that. It's kind of a miracle that you are ever not doing that.
0: That's what yeah. I think. And I think there's some real power in that because I think we're very good, especially when we've grown up in that toxic environment. And I do want to touch on that. I do think it's really important. You'd mentioned just before we started recording that you have a very toxic narcissistic mother. And I think when you've grown up in that environment, and that's how I would view my relationship with my mother. It's really difficult not to repeat those cycles, but it's also really, really difficult not to beat yourself up over every little thing, because that's the message that you're taught. And whilst we're busy trying to be the best parents that we can be, and we're busy trying to break this cycle, we're still often stuck in that phase of holding ourselves accountable for every little thing, holding ourselves accountable, and then punishing ourselves for all the things that we do wrong. And I'm Interested to hear your thoughts on how we navigate that.
2: I mean, it's all shame, truly. Like, like if I could say three words to describe everything you're talking about, it's the shame. Like in my work, counseling clients, kids and adults in my work, coaching parents around the world, like it's the shame. It all comes back to shame. The feeling like nothing we ever do is good enough. We didn't create mm. that. That was an experience, a lived experience we had. And kids will own that it's me right? If our parents yell at us and say, you should be ashamed of yourself. What is wrong with you? We don't go, you're being inappropriate. Our kids do now. And that's yes. a fucking miracle. My, <laughs> like my, I,
0: my, yeah, my eldest would my eldest be like, well, hang on a minute. Don't be talking to me like that. That's incredibly rude. Yes. But that's but that, great would that, impossible. Oh, no. that would have been impossible. That would have been, ah,
2: I am shaking even thinking about even one mm. time challenging my parent like that, right? So when our parents are saying things like, what is wrong with you? We don't go, what's wrong with you? We go, yeah. "God, what is, what, what is wrong with me? I know I'm not supposed to hit or I know I'm not supposed to talk like that. Turns out these are all developmentally appropriate kid behaviors that are like in textbooks. Like all kids go through this. But we were made to feel like there was something wrong with us. And so instead of challenging our parent and having a critical eye on this, there are attachment figures. We're like, well, God, apparently something is wrong with me. Like we that becomes an internalized, crippling, damaging set of internal beliefs and core beliefs about who you are, right? I mean, all of these, nothing I ever do is good enough.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't
2: deserve love if slash when I do or don't do be the good girl basically and take care of my parents and put everybody else's needs first and be selfless and have no not ever be traumatic never have needs never be high maintenance never be misbehaved never fail I mean there it is
0: right there yeah that's so relatable it's that internal monologue that if if somebody had said to you is that how you feel you'd probably be like no but actually if you were to dig down into it and think is that how I feel? Do I think I deserve love? And I remember my therapist asking me once, do you feel like you deserve love? And I was like, um, and that's not a normal response. (laughs) Most people would be like, yeah. Why, why Uh, wouldn't I? What's wrong with me? Is it not? Oh my
2: gosh. I mean, I don't, I can't think of a counseling client I've ever worked with who, who would say, yeah, I deserve love.
0: Mm. And that comes from the messages that we got from narcissistic parents.
2: It's the shame and compliance driven, fear-based discipline
0: yeah and it's it's so hard to unroot that and to do the work within yourself to come away from that good girl behavior Mm -hmm. to come away from that obedient daughter I mean (laughs) for me there's still an element of feeling like betrayal by mm-hmm. stepping away from that role that I thought I was playing, you know, I've said before on the podcast. If you'd have asked me ten years ago, I'd have said, "Oh, my mom's my best friend. We're so close. We've got like the closest relationship ever," because I didn't want to look at it in any other yeah. way. I couldn't look at it in any other way. Couldn't look at it. I couldn't look yeah. at it in any other way. And I will. Thing. I will quote my
2: dear friend Michaela, who I know you've had on here. Yeah. That you're not betraying your mom. You're betraying the narrative that you need to betray yourself and abandon yourself for her. Yeah. That's that's what you're betraying. You're not betraying yourself. And it's kind of fucked up that you and I and so many of us were raised in this world where loving our mothers equaled abandoning and punishing and torturing ourselves. Like yeah. that's that's what's fucked up here. Not yeah. you. All these really messed up messages we were raised under. And a narcissist, really anyone with a personality disorder but especially narcissist and borderline personality. It's like weaponized shame. It's
0: like shame on steroids. That weaponizing, because I remember quite often I would have experiences where if I did manage to vocalize anything, which was far and few between, but if I did, there was almost always um, within the punishment an element of mocking. Mm -hmm. And I had a conversation with, it was on a completely different podcast, which was great, called Latch Keys and Urchins, which talked about childhood trauma in all its varying forms. And I'd spoken to them about it and they did like at the end of it, a wheel that you spin to talk about different emotions, what that feels like in the body, how you, what you associate with that emotion. And what came up for one of the other women was embarrassment and immediately I i actually I bought it up in therapy the next day because I was like everything in me clenched. I thought if I've got to give an example mm-hmm. of embarrassment, I think I'm going to have a panic attack. Mm-hmm. And I'd never even considered that. And it was because yeah. so much of my interaction with my mother, especially if I challenged things, came yeah. from this point of shaming, of mocking, of embarrassing, which just compounded everything. Yeah. Can't tell a story. Yeah. I tell you about the
2: moment shame made so much sense and where I finally connected it back to parenting. So I had found internal family systems. Have you found IFS yet? Have you found your way to that? Oh, Harriet and everybody listening. Oh my gosh. As soon as you're done with this, I need you to stop what you're doing, carve out 30 minutes and I need you to go, go listen to a podcast about IFS. So there's this clinical psychologist, Dr. Richard Schwartz, and he was working with bulimic teens in the eighties and he was a family therapist and he had done a lot of work with families in session where one family member would be kind of dominating and you have to say, okay, I need you to kind of step back for a minute. Like, let's let them talk. And anyway, through his work with these bulimic teens had found that we have unconsciously an internal family of parts. Shame is one. Fear of abandonment is one fear of disappointing others, fear of upsetting others, anxiety, rage, panic. We have all these parts and they are efforting to protect us. We have other parts of us that are, that IFS calls exiled parts. And there are little Harriets and little Maggie's that are still in that room on that day, reliving that experience. Sometimes they go dormant, but if anything in the present moment feels familiar to that, they kind of activate. Mm -hmm. And the pain that we push down gets activated. And so it's like a fire. And then all these protector parts show up as like the firefighter to put the fire out and protect us. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I had understood shame as a protector part. And I was trying to figure out, but why is it such an asshole? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I had had clients be like, but why is it such an asshole? And I'm like, I don't know yet, but we'll get there. So one day I, this was five years ago. So my son was born very early. It was crazy. This was like four months in. I'd been on like 20 courses of antibiotics, been in the hospital several times, had like gone septic. Like my body had been through hell and I had gotten out of the shower, was drying off and just like trying so hard to love my body, trying so hard. And just like, honestly, like universe, what, <laughs> what is it going to take for me to find? Like, can't, why can't I have empathy for this body that's mm. grown two whole humans and in really hard times delivered one? With like my water breaking so early and like anyway, why can't I love my body? And shame shows up inside for the first time, and I had this internal dialogue with my shame part, and my shame part's like, oh, we gotta do something about this, like talking about my body. And so inside, I'm like, are you? Here you go again. Why are you like this? Why are you so mean? And shame goes, I am not trying to be mean. Your mother loves you more when you're thinner, and I'm just trying to help you be more lovable. Oh yeah. And you know what? Shame's not wrong. Yeah, My mom does love me more when I'm thinner. My mom also loved me when I was a good little girl, when I didn't challenge her, when I took care of her and abandoned my needs. And so I feel like I call shame the enforcer part. It's got that, like when we were growing up, it noted, okay, thinner equals more loved, heavier equals less loved. So shame's going to keep being like, no, 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 we need to be like this. We need to have no needs. We need to put everybody else first. We need to do it perfectly. We need to make them happy. And when we show up in the world and we're going against our code of what we had to do to be valuable and matter and feel loved and lovable by our parents, shame is going to be like, no, 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 not safe. And it's going to do whatever it has to do to shut you down because it doesn't feel like it's safe. And we can educate shame. And this is where the IFS framework is so just Fucking magical because IFS also teaches you about your highest self, which IFS calls self with a capital S. And it's self can be the leader and self needs to be the leader, right? But we like because of the way we were parented and because of all the shame that was present in making us feel like you don't deserve love right now, right? Because you're being so bad or you're misbehaving or you're making my life hard. Self's there, but self is not the leader of the system. Shame often is and fear of disappointing others and fear of upsetting others. And so we can learn how to live from self. We can, and you've had moments in your life when you've been in self where you've been like weirdly calm or you've been able to find some empathy for someone. And it almost didn't make sense, but you could feel that empathy or you've had this weird confidence. Like that's, there's, that's self you've had moments where you've been in self. And so What I love about the IFS framework is that it helps, it helped me so much, both as a person healing from this shit and as a therapist to become the leader in the system and not let shame be the leader anymore. And so when shame shows up, I can say, oh, there you are again. Hi. Um, It's actually safe now to like have an opinion. It's actually safe now to set a boundary. Like I appreciate it, but you're talking like 38 years ago and like now we're good. So I need you to step back. And like when shame, the crazy thing is, I'm actually starting a podcast soon about shame. And when I first started before I found IFS, when I first started my practice, I had like the best information available on shame at the time from the mental health clinicians I could find was to basically tell shame to fuck off. Yeah. To overpower it. And IFS just completely blew the lid on that because shame is a part of you shame is a part of me. And if I ignore it, it just has to be louder. If I run away from it, it has to chase me Mm -hmm. and chase me down and tackle me till I finally give it a chance to talk. And it is transformative when you turn towards shame and you say, oh my God, all this time, you've just been trying to protect me. You've been trying to keep me safe. I don't agree with what you're saying. And what you're saying is a little outdated. We need to bring you up to the present but you were just trying to protect me. Oh my gosh. All this time. That's profound.
0: That's incredibly profound. And I've never thought of it in that sense at at all. I've never even considered it, but just with you saying then about your mother loved you more when you were thinner, which is not wrong as awful as that is. And as unkind and cruel as that is, Uh I look back and I can think about my experience and think, yeah, my mum loved me more when I was compliant. My mum loved me more when I was hateful towards my dad or when I was willing to listen to her and be her standing spouse or therapist. Those were the times when I felt safer, when I felt more loved. They, Yeah. I've just, I've never even considered it. Never even considered it. And funnily enough with you saying about you, you have had those moments of clarity where you feel weirdly calm I remember going to speak to my mum and asking because my mum lived with us um, and I had uh, we built her an annex and I had to ask her to leave the annex when I finally became estranged. And I remember going and speaking to my mum and being like, look, mum, this isn't working. As we agreed, you know, I'm going to need you to move out. We'll make sure everything is right and we'll we'll go down this path and it's going to be fine fully intending that she would say okay that's what we discussed prior to you know you building me an annex and everything fine we'll do that and there may be a bit of back and forth or a bit of I'm disappointed or any of those things but it was just a flat out refusal it was a no I'm not doing that and you should be ashamed of yourself for doing that and I've never even really connected the two. And then the following part to that was me having almost like gone in terrified. It was one of the hardest conversations I've ever had in my life and will ever have, I think. And I was terrified. I was so frightened of course you were. those emotions. And then after that, when I realized that not so much that this wasn't gonna go my way, but that this was gonna be another, another repetition Of her making it as difficult as possible. And I realized in that moment, actually, this isn't going to be me and her having a relationship where we've got a bit of distance. Because if she can't have the complete enmeshment of my life and she can't control my life, she's going to total this relationship entirely, more so than she already has. And in that moment, I felt really calm, devastated. Self was in the room. Yeah, but really calm because I knew yeah. it was almost like a light switch clicked because I just knew all of that fear wasn't going to do anything for me. Yeah. It wasn't going to change anything. And the worst outcome right. was literally happening. I was watching it happen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I don't know. What, what's the difference between that and disassociation? Because I tend to, I mean, maybe it is a bit of disassociating when you go to self, is it? Or?
2: Mm-mm, no. I like to think of dissociation as we have, like, if we, this is way simplified, but just for the sake of explanation, let's say that our stress that we can hold in our body goes, it's a bucket that can hold zero to 10. And when we hit 10, our body can't hold any more stress. We're pouring Mm -hmm. into a cup and then it overflows. I think of dissociation as And so many of us, it was a way of life as a child for survival, right? And you're living in an abusive and a neglectful relationship and an environment with an emotionally unstable parent um, for whatever is driving that, right? Substance abuse, mental health, trauma. Um, Dissociation to me is when our stress level had to go above 10, but we couldn't have a relief. And there's a cost to that. Mm -hmm. Like at some point our brain and our nervous system is like, Okay, not safe to have a release because we get in deep, deep trouble and you know they get scary or we get hurt or, right? Yeah, even more emotionally unstable. Mm-hmm. Can't have a release, but somehow need to keep going. And so we go above 10, but our brain and nervous system take us offline consciously. So we can be there, we can participate in conversations, but emotionally and consciously we're not there. And that's our brain and nervous system taking such good care of us to protect us cannot take any more input. So I will hold this in. I will somehow figure out how to keep 13 inside of a 10 cup or 20 inside of a 10 cup, but there's going to be a cost to that. And I think so many of us who it's been interesting healing and getting clarity and getting perspectives on my own dissociation journey. I think there are things every now and that will, they will put me into acute dissociation. Like if I have a trauma activation, I had, I lost my hair for like nine months, about a year and a half ago. I had to get extensions because I have like barely any hair left. I had an, an acute trauma activation and for the first time was like shaking controllably. And I don't remember that day. Like I, that was but it doesn't happen very often like that what happens more is that at some point in the day if i am such an overworker or functioner and so if and it happens less as i'm healing this but if i'm not paying attention to my body and how it's how it's feeling at some point my body's like oh, okay well she's not hearing our efforts to like take it down a notch so we're just going to we're just gonna, we're just gonna dissociate for a little bit, just to kind of, it's almost like to numb, almost to cope, Mm -hmm. to survive. And so I I call it freeze mode, right? It's when I'm, I'm just kind of, I can't get up off the couch or I can't find my, you know, I pull up in my driveway and I'm just unable to move. And some people, there's interesting crossover in my opinion with, there's a lot of people out there that have been diagnosed with ADHD, especially women, but it's really trauma presenting us. And so the ADHD community would refer to this as ADHD paralysis. And I think there are people who absolutely have ADHD, but there's a lot of people who, when they're dysregulated, when they're overwhelmed, the ADHD symptoms show up, but when they're pretty regulated, they're okay. That's what I'm talking about. So there are times that I call it freeze mode. And so sometimes I like, my husband is incredibly supportive. did not have this experience at all. And so I'll say, I'm in freeze mode. Can you help me get off the couch? You know, or yeah. help me. Cause it's sometimes in freeze mode. It's just hard to, you know, my body just needs a break, and so the work is not shaming myself, not berating myself, not beating myself up for it, and just going, thank you, body, thank you, brain, thank you, nervous system, for like catching me a break. I'm trying hard, so hard, to stop over functioning and like, you know, but not put the pedal to the metal. But sometimes my brain and nervous system need me to take it down a notch. So it, I would say it happens every day, but not for long, long periods usually. Yeah. But does that make sense? It's more of yeah. kind of a slow, like, I'm just going to take us offline for a little
0: bit. Seems yeah. like we're okay for a little bit. So I'm just going to take a little break. Okay. Yeah, just kind of winds you down a bit and makes makes you stop. And I think these are the things that said. our brain's so powerful, mm-hmm. and there's so little that we understand still about the brain and about how trauma affects the brain and how these things work. But how powerful is that that your brain can literally send you a message and be like, "Look, <laughs> you right? are." I mean, come on now. Like we've <laughs> we've not eaten today. We've not done this. You it, dial it back, for God's sake, woman. Yeah.
1: If and that, you don't. I'll really do it. For yeah, you, I'm gonna right? make
0: you sit here for a minute, like a minute. I'm gonna make yeah. you sit because you are just, you are going too far today. And I think that's really powerful. It's funny you mentioned about the shaking because that happens to me if I get really, really stressed. If I get really, really stressed, or an event or something happens that triggers me, I think we have a, a big issue with using the word triggered nowadays Mm -hmm. but it it is what's happening it is triggering a trauma response in me and my Mm -hmm. hands get really 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 cold my feet get really 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 cold Um, I can start shaking and then I can't remember things that happened and I I have big chunks of my childhood that look like that that look like me not remembering things and I don't remember most of it yeah 10% maybe on a good day It's funny, isn't it, how Mm -hmm. our brains stop us from remembering that, and that is a protection thing, even though, like you say, outwardly you presented as the good child, the one that knuckled Mm -hmm. down, the one that did all the things that they were meant to do, the one that seemed okay, and yet for you, you weren't okay despite what you were presenting as. Well, and that's one of the most surprising insights
2: on this journey for me, is that So often the kids that we think are doing so well are not. And the kids we think that are not doing well actually are, right? Like I remember when I was becoming a parent and I would see these videos of parents kind of mocking their toddlers. Toddlers are actually very emotionally healthy. Like it's exhausting to parent a toddler. I'm not saying it's not. It's (laughs) fucking exhausting with all the tantrums, but like they're not holding stuff in. We teach Mm. them to do that by accident, Right? We teach them that they should be able to behave right now when they're at a nine point five and their body's about to force a release, whether we like it or not. you know it's it's actually very healthy when you're hit ten to let your body have that release. yeah, and that's not how we were raised. and trying to be a parent who can do that is like a Herculean task, right? to learn how to outwit the parts of us that want to shut them down to protect them from what would have happened to us if we had done that. Right. Shame's right there to remind us how, how we got the silent treatment or we got spanked or we got hit or whatever. Right. We got yelled at, our parent got scary. And so, so often we're trying to, you know, protect them. But in my experience as a therapist, for a while, I had mostly oppositional defiance disorder kids actually in grad school when I was, doing, um, counseling for grad school, I had gotten a couple of families who had oppositional defiance disorder kids, and then they kind of referred a bunch of others. So like half my load was half of my caseload was, um, ODD kids. And I just learned so much from them. I mean, it really informed the good kid paradigm too, because those kids want to be a good kids, but their primary stress response is fight mode. Yeah. And in our culture, if you want to be a good parent, who's got good kids, what we basically have to do is is crush fight mode where they're fighting back to us. Mm-hmm. And we have to try to shame them into compliance and be a fawn, right? Yes. Where they're afraid to make us mad, wanting to make us proud, right? That's And we have to move all these fight mode kids over to fawns. And some of us, just because of our biology, we're always going to tend towards fawn. And that's most of us good kids. And then other kids who maybe want to be a fawn, but their brain is just not wired that way. They're wired for a fight mode response. And so that's the difficult kids, the ODD kids. And they would sit on my couch and just cry about how, how much they hated themselves because they couldn't stop themselves. They don't know what's wrong with them. Hated disappointing and letting their parents down. It felt very scary for them to, they could tell that they could set their parent off with just a look that felt terrifying. I just learned so much from these kids. They want to be good, and they they can't. They don't know how, and so it's way oversimplified. But we're really most kids fall into one of those two buckets. Some kids are kind of a go back and forth between. There is kind of a middle bucket, but um, those kids, everybody's worried about those kids. But from where I stand, from a self worth standpoint and an emotional self regulation standpoint, they're getting stress out of their body. right? Kids resist to release, to regulate. The resistance, when kids push back and say, I don't want to do that. I wanted the purple popsicle. I wanted to go do that thing. And they push back. We can so easily see the resistance as disrespect, like our parents did, and we can crush it. But when we do that, we are accidentally and unintentionally crushing their ability to release stress and regulate their body. Because if we shut down the resistance, we shut down the release. And that's, that's where good kids come in. And the kids that, despite all efforts to shut down the release, can't become the kids we label as the difficult kids. And it's, it's devastating. There's shame on all sides of this. But kids have a fundamental need to release stress from their bodies. And it's going to look like pushing back. It's going to look like resisting us. And what we have to learn how to do is be a confident leader who can allow the resistance But also hold boundaries. So much of this I often say is like our child is a caterpillar Mm -hmm. and they will one day be a freaking butterfly, but they're not yet. Yeah. You know, kids until six to seven don't have the parts of their brain that can even orchestrate impulse control on a good day. It's not even fully developed and working together until six to seven. So a child below seven is gonna have issues with impulse control. That's that's early butterfly shit. Yeah. (laughs) So if a kid's struggling to have impulse control, We're literally saying to a caterpillar, what is wrong with you? Why can't you be a butterfly? And they're like, I don't know, mom, but I'll try. I'll try to be a butterfly, right? Yeah. Some of this is just waiting out the clock. And with older kids, like their brain is still developing. They're still growing. And I think all of us were caterpillars who were held to a butterfly standard. We were expected to be little adults who had the emotional self-regulation of an adult, the critical thinking of an adult. And it's fucking insane when you think about it.
0: Yeah. Like, so it doesn't make sense, does it? And it, it, d- it, can't, it can't be healthy.
2: No. And, and unfortunately, what our parents did, instead of allowing the struggle and allowing us to resist, because that's how we release stress and regulate our body, they just shut it down. And And, and I have empathy for our parents' generation. I know mm. that they didn't have all the tools. I get it. Like, I'm not blaming you. Like, I guess I'm, I'm saying that you contributed to all these issues, but I'm also acknowledging that same breath that you didn't have access. We didn't even know. I mean, but like understanding of trauma in the last 20 years has been cataclysmic, right? And an emotional self-regulation and the idea that kids had needs. I think the first yeah. book that was ever published that presented the idea that kids have needs emotionally was like in the 50s. Yeah. After
0: That's, my parents were born. Yeah. Completely different outlook on parenting completely different outlook on us as human beings i mean and i've discussed this previously on the podcast about emotional abuse and how if you look back that wasn't even considered a thing even now we really struggle unless you are in the the right circles if you like the circles that have investigated it have looked at psychology have looked at the impact that trauma has on our brain the impact that emotional abuse has unless you are in those circles and you're discussing emotional abuse with people who understand what that means, you will still frequently hear, it's not real abuse. You wanna hear real abuse and divert it back to physical abuse, sexual abuse. And it's not a competition. All of these things have massive impacts on children that are learning and developing and growing. And if you think about it, stifling those needs, Um, and what you said there about you're expected to be a mini adult, Mm-hmm. that was exactly what I was like but I did outwardly a lot of the time look like I was regulating like an adult people used to say mm-hmm. to me oh you get on so well with grown-ups and my eldest actually does get on really well with grown-ups as well and struggles to match his peers yep. but he also gets on very well with little ones yeah. so he has a broader spectrum than I did but I, I couldn't relate to people of my own age right I felt like I needed to be with the grown-ups I felt like I connected with them I felt like I could hold conversations with them and could because I've been doing it since I was four but there's a cost to that right
2: yeah being a caterpillar who's pretending to be a butterfly that's what you had to do to survive that's what you had to do to get your emotional needs met on any level and that's what you had to do to feel valuable and like you mattered and lovable by your parents but there's a Big fucking cost
0: to that. Mm. There is a huge cost to that, and I think what we're seeing now with people pushing back against that attitude towards parenting, but the way that they view themselves—that's the cost. The way that mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. of myself now, and the way I tie myself worth up in things—that's the cost. Yeah, um, and the cost also when I I was—I think I mentioned it on episode five of the podcast—that when I was. A little girl I was about nine I spent a full year crying every single day and just not being able to understand why I was so Mm -hmm. distraught all the time and it was that that emotion bubbling out that fear of abandonment that inability to continue being a butterfly when I was a caterpillar yep yeah
2: well and I'm so proud of your body I mean I can't imagine what the the backlash from that release right I mean I think so much of and this still to this day, I think this idea that we're supposed to be good parents who have good kids is fucking bullshit, first of all. Like mm. so much of like you, I'm imagining you crying and our moms being like, What will people think? What will they think of me? What will they think? What will they think of me as a mother? And and her feeling the need to shut you down out of fear and shame for what will people think of me? Will they think I'm a terrible mother? I don't want to feel like a terrible mother. So I'm just going to make her happy. And then I can feel good about my, like, it's just, it's fucking insane. Honestly, when you think about it. Yeah. But it from is a self-worth concept. standpoint, in terms of self-worth, like bottling up our feelings and trying to shame kids into compliance is devastating. It's crushing to our self-worth. I, I have, I've had this happen a couple of times where my kids are eight and a half and five and a half. And my oldest is, she's the one who is at most at risk for being a good girl, right? She's a natural Mm -hmm. fawn people pleaser, perfectionist. And so I am just obsessively Mm -hmm. (laughs) concerned about not shaming her and not fanning the flames of shame for her. Right. But there is a way where she'll mostly when she comes with there's like a certain flavor of disrespect and it it, it's totally her doing things that would have been it would have been devastating if I had tried to act like that even one time right it's that kind of stuff that I just like the hair on the back of my neck stands up thinking about what it would have gone for me but there are these moments where she'll like roll her eyes at me or scream at me and then there's a part of me then she'll like ask for a snack and there's a part of me that's like you don't fucking deserve that right now (laughs) yeah yeah. <laughs> or like, can I have a hug and I'm like, you don't fucking deserve a hug right now. And that's I think that like deserving love is really coming back to that that we were made to feel like you're being so bad right now, you don't deserve, deserve my attention. You don't mm. deserve my affection and you certainly don't deserve my kindness or my love. Like go sit and think about how bad you are. Like soak that in and when you've properly raked yourself over the coals and like set yourself on fire about this, yeah. Then we'll talk. Yeah, and that's where like that. I have a I have a video about how normal people apologize by saying "I'm sorry," and I historically it's getting better. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. Are we okay? Oh god, right. And same with thanking with gratitude. Other people are like, "Thank you so much," and I'm like, "Do you know? Do you know how much it means to me?" Oh my gosh, I'm so grateful. This is the best thing ever, right? I notice when my kids move into that excessive fawning. That's her. Like when if I've had. If I've hit 10 and, like, yelled, right? And then she moves into fawning to me, that's, like, alarm bells for me now. Mm. I'm, like, okay. Don't want her to be, like, testing the waters. Are we okay? Here, let me get you a, like, uh That's, like, big alarm bells for me. Red flag everywhere. And that's my sign to, like, Maggie, walk away. Go have a fucking release. Go punch the shit out of some pillows. Lately, it's been, like, stepping into our pantry and just being, like, F this, F parenting, F cycle breaking (laughs) F this. (laughs) and just F bombs just to get it out of my body. And like, I need to regulate down so that I can come back and be like, you don't, you don't need to do this. Like we need to repair, Mm -hmm. but like, I've made you feel like you, you're basically it's survival terror that prompts that fawn response, right? She's having a stress response. Like she's feeling completely insecure and unsafe. And so she's moving into like, I need to get back in her good favor one way or the other. And that's, oh, but like, that was the sign of good parenting when we were kids. Yeah. Like that, those are the moments my mom felt like the best parent, but oh, I was absolutely. like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I'm terrible.
0: Like that's, it's just, it's bonkers when you really think about it. It is. And it's wild that actually the standard of parenting was fear led. It was fear led uh-huh. and shame led. It was led by how can we control this? And it wasn't even, uh, and I was speaking to somebody about this the other day because it really struck me that we model the behavior for our children. Yeah, that's how kids learn. That's how they develop. We're modeling the behavior. But when I grew up, and I'm sure it was the same for you as well, it was do as I say, not as I do. And that just oh, doesn't yeah. work. Like It's a setup. <laughs> it it's is. Not, it's. It's just a setup. You're set up for failure before you even start. And it's by modeling that behavior and being accountable when we do make mistakes, because nobody expects you not to. You are going to make those mistakes as a parent. But being accountable for it and going back and saying, hey, I am really sorry that I yelled. I'm getting very frustrated and I need to take a minute. I'm going to come back but I just need to take a minute because I'm really cross right now and I'm not going to tolerate this behavior, but I'm also not going to yell at you and I need to accept that. So I'm just going to take a minute and then come back to it. But Mm -hmm. it's, it's difficult when you have this idea of what a child should be behaving like.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: It's, impossible at times It is when you have this idea of how you have to control that child's behavior as their parent and when we're so what will people think yeah what will people think and then I will be ashamed there's shame there's shame and it's so difficult to navigate it but what what are your tips for those moments when children are exhibiting behavior that we really do not want to encourage? Because the other flip side that I hear so often is that we will just let them run riot. You know, there's that yeah. that when you talk about gentle parents and that mm-hmm. don't, don't hit, darling, that's not nice. But the child's mm. actually just sat there with a poker at the TV. And yeah, you're thinking, yeah, yeah. oh, my goodness, someone's going to have to stop that child. Like we're getting close to where you're going to have to eat that child Stop! what how do you how do you navigate it without going one way too far to the other yeah I mean I think we believe
2: that accountability for kids requires us to make them suffer we we've never seen accountability without shame and suffering um it's actually way more effective when we're not making kids feel like there's something wrong with them like it's hard. It's much harder for them to believe they can do better next time when we don't like crush their self-worth and make them feel like there's something fundamentally wrong with them. Right. Mm-hmm. But we've never seen it. It's funny. A lot of people, and I've heard this from so many of my clients and people who follow my parenting framework, but everywhere we go, people will tell me your kids are so good. They're the best behaved kids I've ever seen. And Initially it was very frightening because I'm like, oh no, oh God, my kids are good kids, but they're not. They're not little Maggies. They're they get their full range of emotions. But often when I will explain my the level of holding and owning the hell out of your boundaries with love to people, they're like, whoa. Like and and I will admit that some of there are many reasons I created my framework, but one of them was that so many of the gentle parenting frameworks I saw, it was like, mommy, can I have an ice cream cone? Oh no, honey, I'm sorry. You can't (laughs) have them. But you know what? We will go tomorrow and get you an ice cream cone. And I'm like, that's not fucking necessary. You can say no, period. Yeah. And I can my energy can feel empathetic. And I can when my kid melts down, I can go, yeah, you really wanted the ice cream. I get that. Ice cream's delicious. We're not having any today though. And it's okay for you to be mad about it. Like, we don't need, and I feel like that is borderline coddling to a kid when we're like, because sometimes, and this is something that I feel like nearly every other parenting framework misses is that we don't want to avoid setting our kids off. Sometimes our kids are testing boundaries so they can explode. Like, if they were regulated and at like a four or five and they asked for ice cream and we said no, they'd be like, okay, yeah, bummer. But they're asking it at a 9.5. And so sometimes they're like, but we'll go, let me put it on my calendar in 12 hours, T minus 12 hours. Sometimes that's like efforting to not set our kid off. We're trying to like help them see the light. And can't you see, it makes so much sense why we can't have ice cream today or why we have to leave the park today. Like, it's like, we're trying to get them to see the light so we don't set them off. Mm -hmm. And I, we need to not be afraid to set them off. So my kids, like I own the hell out of my band boundaries. I, but it's with love. It's like, mm-hmm. I know you wanted this thing, but the answer is no. And you don't have to like it and you can be mad at me, but the answer is still no. Yeah. Right? And when they're hitting, I see you feel like hitting. I'm not going to let you hurt anybody. It's okay to be overwhelmed by your feelings. It's okay to be mad if that's what you're feeling. I'm not a huge labeler of feelings. I feel like I prefer to be kind of like, it's okay to be upset, kind of vague. Yeah. But the labeling thing kind of drives me nuts. I don't think, I think instead of like, there's a lot of, this is gonna sidetrack us but like there's so much like name the feeling name the feeling but like the feeling here is not like there's all these other things right it's not really about the thing that sets us off and so I just feel like it misses
0: it and sometimes we don't even know what we're feeling like am I frustrated or am I absolutely fucking fuming like which which one is it am I you know know, what am I I upset about this am I ashamed of this am I mm, right I'm just When well, I say
2: in parenting with perspectives, I talk about how the thing is not the thing. The thing that sets us off, us and our kids, is not really the thing that this is about. So I'm not, it annoys me, honestly, when like parenting experts are like, oh, name the feeling, name entertainment. Mm. I think I would much rather you focus on allowing your kid to resist And like to have that release to like to push back on the ice cream or the not going out with friends or whatever and allow them to like have a be kind of pissed that you said no without shutting that down and shaming your kid. Like that should be our first thing in that moment is like let them resist to release to regulate. The resistance is the release. If I shut down the resistance, I'm also shutting down my kid's ability to release. So they're still going to be at a 9.5. And that means the next thing that comes along 10 minutes down the road, we're going to be right back here. Like, let your kid get that release out and get your spectacles on and see that resistance as the release. Like, let's focus on that. And so I generally will say things like, it's okay to be upset. It's okay to be overwhelmed, right? But I don't like, um, anyway, I'm not a big believer in the naming emotions thing, but I think we can say, it's okay to be upset. I'm not going to let you hit me. And now you're showing me that you're having a hard time controlling yourself. My five and a half year old is like knee deep in this with impulse control right now. Yeah. And he's having a fight mode response. When he gets mad and he tries to hit me, I'm not going to let him hit me or yeah. his sister or our dogs or throw shit. I'm going to come over and I'm going to hold him. But it's not going to be this like, Jesus, you're out of control. What is wrong with you? It's a like, I see you feel like hitting right now. And for spectacles on that's fight mode. I don't want to quash this. I don't want to t- shut this down. You need to let it burn out. Right. And so he will resist me holding his hands, and it's a pause, not clause situation. I'm not squeezing his hands. I'm just controlling them. And I'll say, I need to hold your hands right now until you can control yourself again. And I'm, you can be mad and you can, and oftentimes, like I think five to six year olds, four five and six year olds kind of get to this place where it's harder to hold them. You know, they're getting bigger. And so they're not getting as much physical closeness and like being held as much. And so I think sometimes they have to do things to facilitate that, right? To have that physical closeness with us. And sometimes it looks like trying to hit us or kick us or gosh, he's spitting, scratching, biting. He's like all those right now. Mm -hmm. And so it'll start with me holding his hands. And then I end up with him like facing away from me on my lap and I'm just holding him. But it's not this like, you're out of control. What is wrong with you? It's this, woo, you're overwhelmed, and you need to get all this out and I'll be here. And as soon as you can control yourself, I'll, I'll put you next to me. But like right now you need to get all these feelings out. And so I let him resist me. I let him resist the no that I said, or I let him resist right by me holding him even like, let me go, let me go, put me down. It's like, yeah. I know, buddy, I know you don't want me to hold you. I get it, but you're not able to control yourself right now. And I'm not going to let you hurt me. Or I'm not going to let you hurt your sister or he sometimes goes after our dogs I'm not gonna let you hurt anybody with all these big feelings. Like I'm here and I've got you. I have my magic nine, which is it's the nine words that all kids need to hear when they're struggling. And it actually was born out of grown-up counseling clients when we were doing inner child work. It was like this transformational nine-word phrase that I would have them say to their inner kid. And one day I was like, what if I took this phrase that was helping so many grown-ups heal their inner child? Like, what if we just said that to our kids? And it's, I see you, I've got you, I love you. Mm -hmm. And so I say some version of that all the time to my kids and to little me. I Mm -hmm. see you're having a hard time. I've got you. I'm going to hold your hands right now until you can control yourself again. And I love you. And that's the other piece that we have got to like, kids are going to naturally have a shame response. Even if we've never said, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. You should be ashamed of yourself. What is wrong with you? Like, I've never said those things. I have a facial expression that says it for me that I have to really watch when I get triggered. Yeah. But they will go into a shame spiral. Like, that's that's how we're wired. And so the lash outs, whether it's verbally or physically, for us and our kids, by the way, is a shame response. Like, we lash out out of shame. If I say something mean to you, it's because I'm in shame. Mm. And I need to, I think it's Glennon Doyle who talks about hot potatoing the shame. Right? We've yes. got to kind of get rid of it. And so we hot potato it to the next person. And so it is so freaking important, especially when our kids are being aggressive or they're shut down on us to go in with the shame. Perspectacles on there in shame now. And what they need to hear from us is Are you feeling bad about yourself? Are you worried I don't love you right now? Are you worried that you're disappointing me right now? I do love you. I love you all the time, even right now when it's so hard and I'm sorry that you're worried that I don't love you. We've got to go in and address the shame that they're feeling. And so much of the time, my kids will finally move out of resistance once we deal with the shame. As soon as I start talking about the shame, and I saw this so many times with child counseling clients, they would resist me and like the work they were doing until I would start talking about shame. And that's when they would soften because they're like, oh my God, do you get that I'm in here? Yeah. And like all this terrible behavior from school, but like You see me, don't you? You know that I'm in here trying my hardest. You know that I wish I didn't do these things. Oh my God, you get it. You know that I wish I could stop. Mm. That's how we connect with kids. By acknowledging the shame, yeah. And for little ones, it looks like, are you feeling bad about yourself right now? Are you worried I don't love you? I think in my experience, seven-ish, seven, eight-ish, kids can start to understand the concept of shame. Like you can call it that and they kind of understand. But it's going to come back to like, are you feeling like I don't love you? Are you feeling like you've let me down and disappointed me? Are you feeling like you don't deserve love right now because of what you did? I'm here to tell you, I do love you. I'm not disappointed in you. And you do deserve love all the time, even when it's like this. And we have to show kids that we're not going to stop loving them. Like, remember when I was talking about the bathroom bathroom? mirror moment and about how shame was like, well, your mom doesn't love you when you're, when you're heavy. Like, it's almost like we have this list that shame, that code. And it's like, okay, to be lovable, I must be well-behaved all these things. And if I'm not, I don't feel loved because shame makes us feel like there's something wrong with us. Like we don't deserve love. Like fundamentally we are terrible and unlovable. And so, so many times parents will say, my kid says they feel like I don't love them, but I tell them all the time I love them. So like, and I'm like, the problem is the shame.
0: Mm.
2: You're saying I love you. And then you're turning around and turning around and saying, but I'm disappointed in you.
0: Yeah. Do you know, my mom used to have a saying and I actually picked it up very much with my eldest when he was younger. And I, I wish I hadn't. Uh, but it made so much sense to me. And looking back on it, it's such an awful thing to say to a child. But she used to say to me very often, especially when she was really angry with me, I love you, but I don't like you right now.
2: Oh my God, I can't with
0: that. And I I like I say, I for years I was like, Yeah, no, that that makes sense because I want them to know that I love them. And, you know, they're in this um they're they're doing this behavior that I'm not going to tolerate so I'm mm-hmm. going to tell them that I love them because that makes me a good parent because I'm reassuring them and then I'm fucking following it up with but I don't like you right now and it like never... that's kind of a thing like I've seen gentle
2: parenting experts advocating for that yeah. I mean I've also seen gentle parenting experts advocating recently for like I'm not mad I'm disappointed so yeah
0: yeah oh. And I, I, that, I love you, but I don't like you right now. Even hearing that now, like I can feel my back going, that little bit that you get runs up your back that makes you have that response, that physical response to it, because it was such a, I used to hear it and everything used to clench. Yeah. Because it was like, well, I'm obviously not very likable then. And yeah, she says she loves me, but I'm not very likable. Yep. And I will still to this day, I, my therapist said to me not so long ago, do you think you're likable? And I was like, No. I am not particularly likable and I will still say I'm not likable and we know why why. well and
2: and there's I wish we had more time to talk about this but like there have been longitudinal studies where they go in and meet with kids in fifth grade and then again in 12th grade and they'll assess where kids fall shame prone self-talk or guilt prone self-talk so shame prone self-talk is where it's about me I'm bad Yes. Guilt-prone self-talk is where I can say I did something bad. Kids who are told, I love you, but I don't like you, what we're doing is making it about the kid, who they are, instead of, I love you, and I'm not going to let you act like this. I love you, but I don't like the way you're acting. Yeah. Right? That's how we promote guilt-prone self-talk. Guilt is tremendously uncomfortable, but it is adaptive. It helps us hold up our behavior and our actions against our values and feel the impact we had on people and hold ourselves accountable. Guilt sucks, but it's important.
0: Yes. Yeah. And
2: it's not devastating and damaging the way toxic and toxic the way shame is. And so these kids at 12th grade, the shame prone kids are still shame prone unless there's been intervention like parenting or counseling. And they're like exponentially more likely to experience anxiety depression all these poor outcomes anxiety depression um, substance use and abuse risky sexual behavior um, self-harm all these things and the guilt-prone kids who can say i did something bad are whatever i can't remember what the number is but like hundreds of percent less likely to experience those things but that's that's a thing that's still floating around to this day people are teaching that it's like a good Mm -hmm. thing to say they're not realizing that that is making our kid tend towards that shame-prone self-talk, mm-hmm. where they're saying, "I'm bad, I'm terrible," instead of "That was terrible. What I did was terrible. The impact I had on that person was terrible, and I don't like how that feels. I don't, I don't want to impact people like that." So let's do, "I love you," and I don't like how you're acting right now, and I'm going to help you.
0: Yeah it's a huge difference isn't it and it doesn't sound it but it is a huge difference because our language has to be intentional with kids and that's what I'm finding more and more especially as my oldest is getting older and he feels that he can push back with me and he feels quite often we will be I will be telling him not so much tell it well yeah telling him off because what he's done is it's not acceptable and I'll be saying to him that's not you that's not acceptable you've got to go and do this I don't it's not about whether or not you want to do that right now, you have to go and do your homework. You have to go and do this, or you cannot speak to your sister that way. However, it might mm-hmm. be. But he will then say to me, "But you're not seeing it from my point of view," and then we'll have a dialogue. And mm-hmm. even in the obviously, he's older now. You're not going to a five year old that's going to do that because he's starting to learn how to push back against these things. But I can see a complete difference in how I parent him to how i was parented and i can see that although yes he will still have that shame he will still have that guilt that will crop up every so often because they're normal emotional reactions we can mm-hmm. navigate those together mm-hmm. and when i do make a mistake i can repair it
2: well and that's the thing like i remember i had a friend who took my boundaries boot camp a couple of years ago and she she came over one day and she was like i messed up but it's okay and i was like it's it's inevitable mm. like you you need to mess up in front of your kids. You need to show them what it looks like to be a flawed, imperfect person who loses it sometimes, who treats people terribly sometimes, who who lets their emotions get the best of them because your kids are human. They're going to have all those experiences. And I'm not saying we want to go out of our way to mess up and yell at our kids, but it's going to happen. And anybody who says it's not is talking bullshit. Like Mm -hmm. I yell at my kids. I lose my shit on my kids. And for a long time, I had this like, fear that they would take my parenting expert card or something away. Yeah. You know, but then I realized, oh, okay. I'm the one parenting expert that admits this out loud, you know, mm. admits that I have mom rage. And like, of course I do. But when we mess up, and we will, all of us, including me, mm. um, an expert in this, who literally lives and breathes this. Like the the obsessive parts of me just never stop. Cause obviously I'm I'm a parent and then I'm a parenting expert. And so it's like I I never get out of this. Like When I come around and I circle back and I break that cycle of sweeping stuff under the rug and I effort towards seeing the impact I had and making my kid feel seen that I see I hurt you and I can see that my actions had an impact on you. I see that. Can you imagine just one time we'd ever gotten that? And I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Like we can do so much and that's the work. I mean, that's it we do our best to, I mean, bottling our feelings is one of the core issues we've all got. We've got to raise kids who don't feel like they need to bottle and we need to learn how to not bottle our own, you know, and not let my kids take the brunt of, and, and get all the rage that I feel like I still need to scream at my parents for yeah. all these things. You know, my kids don't need to take the fall for how my parents made me feel and it's so easy if we're not managing our emotions and we're not unloading stress and frustration as it comes like we're gonna hit 10 and fight mode's gonna take over and our kids are gonna take the ball and that's the work but when yeah. it does happen we circle back and we own it and we say that wasn't okay you don't deserve to be treated that way
0: mm, no this is my work me. oh maggie i could talk to you all day about <laughs> this i honestly could and about shame and toxic shame and guilt i feel like that it's just it's such a huge part of this journey. And such a huge part of this experience. I honestly, I, I'm so grateful that you've taken the time to talk to us today. And I feel like it's going to really help people who especially hearing that message that they can expect to get it wrong. and that they can build and repair in that relationship and if anything it's very healthy to get it wrong in those moments so that you can show a repair and that you can show what a genuine apology is and how and model that behavior because that's what we're all trying to do
2: raise them to know how to apologize but more importantly i feel like raise them to expect that they deserve an apology when someone treats them
0: right yeah, because I never felt like I deserved... Actually, that's that's so poignant. I've never felt like I've deserved an apology for anything. And, and yet I, you apologize
2: yes, for everything. So. Yes,
0: and yet I apologize for everything. And I have had some shitty behavior in my life, not just from my parents, but I would uh, would have fallen over if you'd have been like yes? Yeah, so you expect a proper repair and apology and I've been like well like a half-assed apology will do <laughs> and anything now, would do yeah anything and since cutting ties with my mum in particular and really starting on this work I mm-hmm. expect not just an apology but effort and difference mm-hmm. and change and work and those boundaries And those expectations that I deserve better have only come from since I started cutting, since I cut my mum off and since I started working on myself. And that's the big crux of it, because it was the working on myself that made me go, oh, okay, I'm not going to tolerate this from anyone ever again. Hell yes. Yes. Proud of you. Thank you. I feel like that is the perfect time to let you go and get on with your day. And just can you let people know where they can find you both for Maggie with Perspectacles and with your parenting as well? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, I renamed my Parenting with Perspectacles
2: framework on Instagram and TikTok over to Maggie with Perspectacles because I want to share more about my history of eating disorders and like just kind of stuff that's not directly parenting and reparenting in our child. So I do still have a Parenting with Perspectacles on TikTok and Instagram where I share just parenting and reparenting stuff. And then Maggie with Perspectacles is where I'm sharing kind of more about my whole healing journey and all of my clinical expertise outside of
0: just the parenting and reparenting amazing thank you so much and you also have the estrangement project as well and then you have a, a new podcast that'll be coming up so yes. people need to keep an eye out for that yes I know I can't announce the name yet but it's coming soon I'm so excited for that do let me know when it is well I will see it but thank you so much <laughs> thank you thank you thanks guys for listening I will speak to you all next week bye